You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Welcome everybody, this is Paul Flynn with Megiddo Radio for the 4th of September 2020 for this Friday night program. Thank you all for tuning in. Uh, apologies a few minutes later than I was expecting. We're doing a spot of different type of recording and wasn't sure if everything was plugged back in. So uh, doing a few checks there. Hopefully everything's working okay. And if you could let me know in the chat, that would be wonderful. This will be the last program until... Uh, couple of weeks time um the next two weeks are gone myself and the family this is a we're booked a holiday we're going back in january it's something i never really do i never really we never really go anywhere it's not abroad i'm not going on a plane or anything like that in case somebody's wondering worried about covid or anything else like that um it's going to be <laughs> in a car and it's going to be in the middle of nowhere. So uh, next to a beach and chilling out and disconnected from the internet and lots of board games and time with my family. And I'm really, really excited about it. So um, that's what we'll be doing for the next uh, t 10 days starting from Monday. So yeah. And uh, yeah. And if you've, anything you can email me after that but you know i'm really looking forward to that so that's where there won't be any programs for the next two weeks really and we'll come back after that if you have anything you would like me to cover in the meantime get a films at gmail.com just uh i wouldn't expect a speedy response on tonight's program we're going to be dealing with uh william lane craig and he put out a video a couple of weeks ago on Romans 9. It's been responded to by one or two people, but um, I said I'd give you my two cents on it before I kind of take a break. I was hoping to get um, hoping to get an extra program done this week. It just didn't really work out. I was actually sick most of the week, unfortunately. And uh, so, but there doesn't seem to be too much else going on in the world i would have liked to have done some more catechism larger catechism type programs but that didn't quite work out so might be end up i'll try and do more of that when we come back it won't always be programs like this because um I think um, over the years, I've kind of discovered <laughs> the drawbacks of maybe too much focused on personalities and all that. Now, I don't want to replace anybody's minister or anything like that. Hopefully, this will whet your appetite and be a supplement to the, the godly teaching you're already getting in your congregation, whatever that may be. Uh, don't ever make a... Well, Megiddo Radio is not parachurch. It's basically just me. Um, there's no organization behind it. Uh, I, to be honest, what's probably going to happen with Megiddo Media and all that kind of thing, um, it will be purely either it might go under, you know, s some 
authority within whatever church I'm in, or it just may be purely side projects that I'm doing and pursuing and all that kind of thing. And um, so, yeah, pray for that and then the future and kind of wisdom in that area. So before we get into our main topic, our main topic, which is dealing with William Lane Craig, we're going to go through uh, Psalm 29. We're looking at the various psalms in the Psalter. Again, encourage you to sing through the Psalter. Uh, that will be a blessing unto your soul, and that it will encourage you in these very unsettling times. It still are. And I know people would like to pretend that it's over, but let's let's deal with what we're facing. It's not easy for anybody, um, regardless of what position you're taking on, on many, many things. So Psalm 29. Psalm 29. We're going to just read through this and make a few comments on this. And the psalm I just read through the a few seconds ago just the, has a massive sense of the power of Almighty God. So hopefully this will be an encouragement to us before we deal with a topic that very much deals with the power of Almighty God, the issue of Calvinism, Molinism in the case of William Lane Craig, uh, but very, very similar to issues that generally deal with Arminianism in general. So let's pray. Almighty and ever-living God, Father, we pray that as we read your word, your holy and infallible word, we pray that it would bless us all. O Lord, may it guide us, may it be a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. We pray, Lord, for those who perhaps are listening to this program may be suffering in various different ways. We pray, Lord, that the, the word of truth may encourage them and bless them. O Lord, we pray that you would cause us, Lord, to that you would cause the word of truth to be hidden in our hearts. It may be precious to us. In Jesus' name we now pray. Amen. Amen. Psalm 29, let us hear God's holy and infallible word. Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory, the God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf. Lebanon and Syrian, like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The voice of the Lord the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth, and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everyone says, "Glory." The Lord says, enthroned at the flood. And the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word. So, the major theme here, in a lot of ways, is the theme, very much the power 
of the Lord, the power of the or the mighty strength of the Lord. And the first section is very much about giving glory to God because of that fact. Lord willing, we'll be able to do that in in our presentation dealing with Calvinism. Excuse me. So, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Holiness is a wonderful thing. Sorry, my headphones are kind of gone a bit funny. That's better. So, then it talks about the voice of the Lord and has many powerful statements of what the voice of the Lord does. Very much like this. The Lord commands something and it, it comes to pass. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. Thunders is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. And gives some of the examples, some of the things that, it do, that the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. These strong trees. Splints the cedars of Lebanon. You know, verse 7, the voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. Shakes the wilderness, the vast, mighty wilderness. Strips the, excuse me, strips the, the forest bare. So the voice of the Lord is powerful. God is powerful. The Lord sat enthroned at the flood, and the Lord sits as king forevermore. And it's that king in whom we serve. And that's the king we need to acknowledge as king. Powerful in every area of life, including salvation. The Lord will give strength to his people. It's not like he provides it a little bit and then we do the rest. No, the Lord provides all of the strength that we need. So salvation is of the Lord, and that is why we do programs like the Lord will bless his people with peace. Amen. I mean, the Lord bless his word. But that's why we do programs like this, hopefully to, to help people who, when it comes to William Lane Craig and other things like that, and the people will see why these things matter. Sometimes in apologetics or polemics or whatever, it's, um, it might be people blasting each other and, well, we disagree. Oh, there's, you can see that maybe somebody's got a better argument or whatever. But sometimes we don't see why it matters. What's the difference? What practical lived out difference does it make? And um, it's massive. Especially to giving glory due to his name. If we attribute anything to man, we're taking away glory from God. So we're going to open up our Bibles in Romans chapter 9 and going to try, <laughs> try uh, to keep this program to about an hour and go through William Lane Craig's video from a couple of weeks ago dealing with Romans chapter 9. He, look, I suppose he did a 10 minute video and I've seen a couple of other 10 minute videos in 10 minute videos very hard. You're skipping around the place. You're, you're cherry picking. Um, this bear one thing in mind as well is William Lane Craig is not a, an Arminian. 
and he, he, he redefines a couple of terms now. It's a him. He's taking his theology from a well, a Jesuit. So um, read his book a couple of years ago. The only wise God, uh, the the compatibility of divine foreknowledge and human freedom. And on page one three five onwards, he basically talks about the origin. Let me see here. Yeah, one three three onwards. We'll we'll mention that where it's pertinent to understand. William Lane Craig's. It might just. Oh, he he believes in the sovereignty. Oh yeah, he believes it's God's decision. Yeah, but it's it's redefining of terms. You could say Arminianism does the same to a certain extent, but there's a probably a larger degree of it when it comes to Molinism. Let's play, and uh, we're going to critique William Lane Craig here, going through Romans chapter nine. Now, someone might say, but doesn't Romans 9 teach that human beings are completely inert in the process of salvation? That it belongs entirely to God's will, who is elect and who is reprobate and left unsaved? Doesn't Romans 9 teach a strong doctrine of predestination and irresistible grace that excludes any sort of human role in terms of a free response, such as I have suggested. Well, I'd like to suggest for your consideration a very different reading of Romans 9 than the one that we so often hear. Typically, people think of Romans 9 as God's narrowing down the scope of election to just those few people that he wants to save. He passes over the broad mass of humanity to selectively save those few that he has picked out. I want to suggest that Paul's burden in Romans 9 is exactly the opposite. What Paul wants to do here is to broaden the scope of salvation, not to narrow it down to a select few. He wants to broaden it as wide as possible. You see, the problematic that Paul is dealing with in Romans 9 concerns Jewish persons who think that because of their Jewish ethnicity, they have a sort of leg up on salvation with God. Those who were ethnically Jewish found it unthinkable that God would reject his chosen people, Israel, and instead allow these execrable Gentiles to go into the kingdom of God rather than his own people. So there's a okay. There's an element of truth in there. A um, good bit of an element of truth in there. So Romans chapter nine is largely dealing with, first of all, um, Israel's rejection of Christ in the first few verses. Um, that how the Israelites they're the ones. Basically, they're the visible church in the Old Testament. They're the ones who, who were given 
It says here in verse 4, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is overall the eternal blessed God. Amen. There's that kind of introduction. And then, um, dealing with Israel's rejected, but the promise isn't rejected. Why? Because the seed is in Abraham, Isaac. It's, it's children according to the promise, not just all of Israel according to the flesh. Just giving kind of my introduction to Romans chapter 9. Not necessarily refuting anything per se, but just giving a little bit more detail before we hear what he has to say. Um, verse 10 is very, very clear that election is chosen not because it works in any person. Verses 10, 11 down to 13 talks about the difference between Jacob and Esau. And that's not talking about Jewish and Gentiles, that, you know, Jacob and Esau. So, and the difference between these two is the election of God. Before either of them had done any works, not of works, but of him who calls. It's of God. Um, you know, and then Paul brings into question in Romans chapter 9, is this just? Is this is okay to do that? And Paul deals, what should we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? And he emphatically declares, certainly not. Meganoito. So, for he says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I will have mercy. So, God is completely just. He's vindicated in this. His promises continue. Um... That's kind of what the chapter is dealing with. Now, there are parts of other parts of Romans where, and other parts of the New Testament where, okay, it's not just ethnic Jews, it's all those who have faith in Jesus Christ. But this is specifically talking to the issue to do with Israel, the promises to Israel, the promises to Abraham. Is that unjust, that choice of election? true Israel according to, you know, spiritual Israel as opposed to ethnic Israel. So as a general overview, and then, you know, from verse 14 onwards, it's, it's talking about God's justice and God hardening and God um, bringing those in whom he will have mercy. I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, as he says to Moses. And this is not... What's in Romans 9 is not a new concept, not something brand new. Clearer, of course, the book of Romans is clearer, um, and the clarity and all this kind of stuff, and, and deals with specific uh, things that took place. Um, very much deals with the sovereignty and the power of God, especially from verse 19 onwards. So, How God could prefer over the Jews these Gentile dogs and save them and pass over the Jews was just unthinkable for these Jewish people. So what Paul wants to emphasize in Romans 9 is God's sovereignty in electing and saving whomever he wants, 
regardless of their ethnic background. Whether True, um, and it does get to the Gentiles at the end of the chapter. Um, verse 24, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. But the Gentiles aren't the major bulk of the argument. It's about God's sovereignty. It's about God's promises to his people. They continue, the seed continues. God is just. Even within Israel, there were there was a, an invisible Israel. This is Romans chapter 9, verse 6. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. So most of Romans chapter 9 is dealing with Israel and the election within Israel. Now, there is, of course, mention of the Gentiles, but that's not the major focus. Okay, at the end of uh, chapter 9 as well. But that isn't the main bulk of the argument. Jew or Gentile, it is God's choice as to who will be saved. So, you notice at the beginning of chapter 9, Paul expresses his anguish concerning those Israelites to whom all the promises of the Old Covenant belong that are not believers in Christ. He says in verse 6 that it is not as though God's word had failed. Rather, he says, that not everyone who is descended from Israel belongs to Israel. Not everybody is a real child of Abraham just because they are his physical descendant. Just because you are ethnically Jewish doesn't mean that you have some sort of a favored status. Which is, which is true. I mean, um, just to point you towards other parts of Romans, uh, verses 28 and 29, uh, Romans chapter 2, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, not from men, but from God. So again, this isn't, it's not a new issue. <coughs> there were always reprobates within the visible church, as there are today. They're not all Israel who are of Israel. They're not all uh, invisible Israel who are of visible Israel. And as it continues today, so large amount of this wouldn't we disagree with, really. With God. Rather, as Paul illustrates with the story of Jacob and Esau, God has the freedom to choose whom he wills to be saved. Just being descended from Abraham physically is no guarantee. So, in verses 6 to 24, so according to William Lane Craig, what is the guarantee? The guarantee is faith. It's the person. It may sound like, well, you know, God does the choosing. Yes, but uh, in Molinism, get some quotes from his book from a couple of years ago. When did he bring this book out again? He brought this book out, 1999. 
I was hoping at some stage also to do something on Demolina, where this uh, teaching on free will originated. Um, he believes in a view called middle knowledge, or otherwise known as Molinism. So this is what he says in his book. See, he, they will say, well, it's God who chooses because he has set up a world this is basically to explain what he's mean. He has set up a world in which free creatures will choose based upon the world's setup. Basically, they're free, they can make choices, but he has set up a world in which those people would be choose or chosen. Complicated, yeah. Um, so here's what he says on page 133 of his book, uh, The Only Wise God. It says, um, pre-science of foreknowledge is beautifully explained on the dual basis of middle knowledge and divine will. Here we pick up the loose thread from the previous chapter. Middle knowledge is from a conceptualist, conceptualist model of divine foreknowledge. It holds that God did not acquire his knowledge of the future by foreseeing what lay ahead. So, Here's rejection of Arminianism, or at least apparently. Rather, he has such knowledge innately. <clears throat> Nevertheless, foreknowledge is not logically foundational, but it is based on God's logical prior middle knowledge and his free decision to create a world. By his middle knowledge, God knows all various possible worlds which he could create, and every free creature would do in all various circumstances of those possible worlds. One way of explaining it is almost like saying he, he, is, he has all these possibilities. And he's like a supercomputer. Rather than bring it to pass, like the God of the Bible, uh, Molinism has kind of a, almost like a super calculator, super smart, sets up a world in which certain people will choose. So, he says in another place, only in an infinite mind could, cal could calculate the unimaginable complex and numerous factors. <laughs> it's not, but it's not all powerful. This is a philosophical, quote-unquote, solution to God's way of doing things, and his ways are higher than our ways. We might not always understand it. He says in another part, page 136, God knew how every person in any conceivable circumstance would freely respond to his grace and drawing of his spirit. Okay, he set up all the parameters in order to make it pop. That's what he's calling God choosing. Set up all the parameters in which the other person would make the right decision. But it's still based upon that person making the decision. Like, if you had this plan of arranging something that you put two people together and you know that they're going to do do something specific. Well, you're not all, all sovereign over that issue. That is maybe manipulating of people, whatever the case may be. It might sound clever on paper, but it has massive problems. And it has the same problem that Armenianism has. And essentially, it's a, 
an early form of Arminianism, earlier in the Reformation, which came right out of the belly of the beast, the Roman Catholic Church, with her Jesuits concocting this. Free will was a massive debate during the Reformation. Now it's just seen as some philosophical, non-important conversation happens between uh, academics. It's very sad. Molinism is a bit of a, it's a bit of a tricky thing to explain, I'll be honest. I've come back and I've studied it a couple of different times um, over the years and just to be able to explain. But it's all about when, when a Molinist says well, God chooses an election, all this kind of stuff, and he is sovereign. Yeah, he shows the mechanism. He set up a world in which free people would do what he wanted them to do. It's not God doing it. That's the problem. Paul says God is free to save whomever he wants, and that no one can call into question God's choice. No one has the right to talk back to God. No one has the right to say that God has to prefer his own people, Israel, over these Gentiles. If God wants to broaden the scope of salvation to include... Um, the problem with this argument, though, is Jacob and Esau, and they were both within the covenant, at least outwardly, um, they were both family. And he's not really dealing with the text at all. Let's deal with verses 10 to 13. And not only this, but when Rebekah also conceived by one man, even by her father, Isaac, for the children not being yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election by stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It is said to her, the older will serve the younger. Again, this isn't the Jew and Gentile issue. Verse 13, it is dealt with in other places, but very, very briefly. As it is written, Jacob I, I have loved, but Esau I have hated. God's covenant mercy, according to election, was upon Jacob. It wasn't upon Esau. And that's what made the difference. That's what made the difference between one and the other. Not, well, one exercise faith. Yeah, but it's that's making the difference. Man, yes, the person who comes must come by faith. But it is a faith that is, in the molding escape, it's really, it's man exercising his faith is the difference. Still, even after everything that is said. Gentiles, in addition to, and even instead of, his chosen people, the ethnic Jews, then no one can talk back to God. It is God who has mercy upon whom he has mercy and has compassion upon whom he has compassion. So here is the key question. Who is it then, according to Romans 9, that God has chosen to elect if it is not those who are ethnically Jewish. 
The answer is those who have faith in Christ Jesus. Those are the ones that he has chosen to elect and save. And so notice how it's those who have faith and it becomes the same problem that Arminianism has. Because essentially it is synergistic, the man and God working together. Because it's not a sovereign election at that point. Again, according to Molinism, there's infinite possibilities of worlds. God knows all the possibilities of worlds, and he sets up a world in order that free creatures would choose him. He set up a world in which these people were elected. But at the end of the day, it's still dependent on man. And he even admits this, actually. He says, um, page 137 of his book, proponents of middle knowledge emphasize that God does not predestinate persons because he knows they would receive Christ and persevere, nor does he select a world because he knows that in it, say, Peter would be saved. Rather, God simply chooses the world he wants, and whoever in that world would freely receive Christ is by the very act of God's selection of that world predestined to do so. So that's what Molinism called predestination. Predestination is setting up a world, free man chooses, therefore which basically man is sovereign in that point, but man chooses. Therefore, according to Molinism, God predestined, that's what predestination is in biblically, according to Molinism. All the people in that world receive sufficient grace to be predestined. Read that again. The, again, it has exactly the same problem Arminianism has. All the people in the world in that world, receive sufficient grace to be among the predestined. So, again, the difference is man, and he says it here. Their eternal destiny thus lies in their own hands. Bible says, salvation is of the Lord. Oh, yeah, well, see, according to Molinus, that would be, well, he, he chose the means and the way, but still, it's in their own hands. I mean, this is, I mean, it sounds like even like rank Pelagianism at times. Their eternal destiny lies in their own hands. William Lane Craig, page 137. Everything depends on whether they freely receive or reject Christ. Again, and he deals with an, on a very philosophical level. So, let me just check there. In verse 30, he writes, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, righteousness through faith. But that Israel, who pursued the righteousness which is based on law, did not succeed in fulfilling that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it through faith. But as if it were based on works. So, what God has done is that he has decided to... Yeah, um, this is still part of Romans chapter 9, but at the end of Romans chapter 9, let's go through it and let's spend a bit of time on it. What should we say then? The Gentiles did not pursue righteousness, having attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. 
okay, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. So what righteousness is it talking about? Again, the rest of Romans chapter 9 is talking about though, you know, the, the Jews, they've been seeking after righteousness. They're trying to establish their own righteousness as it has. And in a lot of ways, this section is really in with chapter 10, but let's deal with it anyway. What should we say then? Um, so verse 31, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained the law of righteousness, as in it tried to, through its works, earn salvation. That's That became the first, a lot of the first century religion, apostate religion that ended up in ethnic Israel, national Israel in the first century. Verse 32, why? Because they did not seek it by faith. Yeah, by faith, you know, by implication, by faith alone. It's either, you know, like uh, Romans 11, verse 6, makes it very clear. Mixing grace and works is like mixing oil and water. It says, verse 6, of uh, Romans chapter 11, if and if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. And so they didn't seek it by faith. They sought it by their own efforts. Verse 32 again, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rocket offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And then Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they zeal towards God. So that's talking about the instrumental cause by which they lay hold upon justification, by which they can attain salvation. That righteousness by faith, which is Christ's righteousness. But that's different from the other argument of that God is in complete control of all things. One is God is the cause of salvation. But here you have the instrumental cause. Because you can't... Okay, Hopefully we can all admit, anybody who's a Christian, that we can't say that our eternal destiny is in man's hands. And the difference between who's lost and who's saved isn't in man's hands, as William Lane Craig said in his book back in 1999, um, dealing with this very issue. Their eternal destiny thus lies in their own hands. Page 137. Hopefully we can see at least that. But according to Molinism and a lot of synergism and things like that, there's a sense in which it's seen that, well, you can say predestination, you can say election, because God has set up a scenario in which man does rest, and just call it that. That's what's... It's like saying sovereignty, but you've really just delegated out and given out part of your sovereignty somewhere else, which which is bizarre because God can never cease to be sovereign. 
save all those who have faith in Christ Jesus. Whether Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. It is those who have faith in Christ Jesus whom God has elected. Therefore, given God's sovereign choice, ethnically Jewish people cannot complain if God has preferred to save certain Gentiles over. It, it, it's so confusing to say God has preferred to save certain Gentiles, which means God has set up a, a possible world in which certain Gentiles will freely choose. And in that certain world, it is in man's hands. Again, that's his own book, okay? Um, just to respond, there's a question there about Jacob and Esau. Um, the question is, was Jacob and Esau not about birthright and who would serve who? Now, Yes, and you, it is both, really, because here's the thing. You can't really detach one from the other. What do I mean by that? Um, often, which it's it's seen as, oh, land, salvation. Well, their behavior and their action and their... For example, Esau disdained his birthright shown his, dis where did his birthright come from? From God. He showed in that action a disdain for God. And out of that action, out of that behavior, showing his heart. And I think sometimes, a lot of the time, we come in a very disjointed view of looking at the entirety of the scripture. You see, the line continued in Isaac because that was God's people. Isaac's line was faithful. Faith in Christ who would come. If you have any doubts about that, read Hebrews chapter 11 and how Moses and everybody else had faith in Christ. Um, but Esau, no. He sought repentance, he couldn't. Sought in with with tears, but he was unrepentant in in a saving way. So it's a manifestation of that. It's it's a our faithfulness or our rebellion against the law of God will be shown in our action and in our attitude and things like that. Hopefully that answers that question. Certain Jewish persons. This is all based upon the principle of faith that Paul explains back in Romans 3 and 4 with respect to Abraham himself. So in Romans 3 verses 21 and following, Paul writes, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, 
whom God... Well, yeah, this is going into Romans chapter 3, which is not really sticking with the context of the argument Paul is making, you know, from verse 1 up until eh, about verse 28, if not even earlier. Um, there, it, Paul obviously does deal with the instrumental cause because, you know, from other parts of Scripture, faith is a gift of God. And... Let's let's have a look at that. Romans chapter three, verses twenty-one to twenty-five. Romans chapter three, verses twenty-one to twenty-five. Um But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. That there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And look. Very quickly, what does Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 do? Everyone is guilty. Jews are guilty. Gentiles are guilty. Everyone is guilty before the Lord. People who have never heard of the law or anything else, they are guilty before God. And it's only by faith in Jesus Christ. But, who comes? Who has faith? Who exercises saving faith in Jesus Christ? And what makes the difference between one lost person and another lost person? One person who comes to Christ, like my, I did about 11 years ago. Why did I come and not somebody else? Can I say, well, because I, I figured it out or whatever the case may be. Here you're dealing with the instrumental cause of something, not election. put forward as an expiation by his blood to be received by faith. In verse 27, Paul says, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On the principle of works? No, but on the principle of faith. I keep muting myself. Uh <laughs> Some people might say that's not a bad thing. Um, so, okay, what then Then what becomes of our boasting? Yeah, why? Because it is the work of Christ. But there would be room for boasting if it was, well, I exercised saving faith and another person didn't. There would be a difference between the lost and the saved. What makes the difference? And then, Romans chapter 9, which is kind of what we're supposed to be dealing with in this video, it's kind of a disappointment he didn't really stay there for very long, um, that the difference was in election, God choosing, who continue in the line, and also arrow salvation, Jacob rejected his birthright, which basically is silence with rejecting the Lord. Um, the older shall serve the younger. As is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I've hated. And the context of this at all is the covenant. His covenant. And it would, in the Old Testament, there's uh, the Lord's chesed, that, that Hebrew term that can be translated either mercy or steadfast love or loyal love or good, goodness, kindness, loving kindness, pity, 
that's what God shows towards his people and does not towards those outside or who turn their back on them. And it's in the context of covenant. Speaks about the covenant, um, you know, to whom? Uh, you know, Romans 9, 4. Who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the keeping of the law, the service of God and the promises? So this is all, again, Isaac. Isaac, sorry. I have a friend who's called Isaac. And, um, he's a little sprained, but that's why I started saying that. Isaac, your seed shall be called. Again, covenant. See, I think the problem when people come to texts like this, they don't view it in line with the Bible as a whole rather than they just deal with Romans 9 by itself. They're not dealing with the history of Israel. They're not dealing with the history of redemption all the way throughout the Old Testament as well. And it's possible to come up with really different interpretations unless you are viewing it in line of the history of redemption going through our time. The children of promise are counted for the seed. The children of the promise. Kind of sounds like salvation. So the children not yet being born and the difference between Jacob and Esau was based upon the election of works. Not election of works, sorry, but... Um, God was the one who made the difference. That's very, very clear from verses 10 to 13. And then that idea of covenant and covenant mercy, covenant love, covenant kindness, pity, etc., and so on. Verses, uh, verse 14, Romans chapter 9. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? So the question could come up. Is it, is it wrong that God did this? And then verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on Whomever I will have mercy. And compassion, whoever will have compassion. And I'm pretty sure the, the corresponding Hebrew term in the Old Testament will be is chesed. And that loving kindness, that pity, that that goodness, that um, benevolence. Um, it, it can be translated so many different ways uh, in English. Loyal love, steadfast love in the ESV. That that love, God's chesed, would be upon his people. And God says to Moses, I will have mercy upon who will have mercy. It's not I will have mercy upon those who exercise saving faith or those who whose will does a certain thing. He is the difference. You see, here's the thing. Here's if God made salvation just available to everyone. No one would come. That's very, very clear from uh, Psalm 14. Praise God. He doesn't just leave us in our misery. He doesn't just dangle a rope down to a dead corpse. He gives that corpse life. He makes it alive and makes it see the beauties of Christ. Because when our eyes are open for the first time and we gaze upon the sunset, we can't help but see the beauty of that. And it's the same with Christ. He opens our eyes spiritually and we see how glorious Christ is and we desire him. That's where his irresistible grace comes in. For we hold that a man is justified 
by faith, apart from works of law. Then he asks specifically, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, and he will justify the circumcised on the ground of their faith and the uncircumcised through their faith. So it is through faith that one becomes a true child of Abraham and a member of that elect body that will inherit the kingdom of God. Yeah, I completely dodged it at the end there. Um, didn't really deal with it that much. Um, so, is there anything else we haven't? Let's let's deal with it a little bit more. Romans chapter nine, verse fourteen onwards. We dealt with a few. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For He says to to Moses, "I want a mercy on who a mercy." Okay, we dealt with that. Verse sixteen. So then it is not of him who wills, but of him who, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. It's not of him who wills. It's not because Jacob wills and Esau doesn't will. It's of God. And that point is, you know, said in other parts of scripture too. John 1 verses 12 and 13 for an example of that. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, and again, you see, we've detached salvation from the covenant or anything else like that, or from judgment. There's judgment in this world, and there's judgment in the world to come. The judgment in the world to come is, is what we call hell. But there's also judgment, not to the same degree, but in this world as well. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I may show my power in you that my name may be declared in all the all the earth therefore he has mercy upon whom and mercy and whom he wills he hardens so with pharaoh what does he do he hardens him showing his power showing that the will of man is not more powerful than the will of God. Verse 19, what you will say then, what does still find fault? For who has resisted his will? For indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who is formed, why have you made me thus? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another to dishonor? The consistent theme towards all this is not Jew and Gentile. That's dealt with other parts of Romans, granted. I'm not disputing that. But the difference of the saved Jew or unsaved Jew or the saved Gentile and unsaved Gentile, the one between the person who comes through faith to God, what makes the difference? And sadly, according to William Nicker, you see, in his system, he can both say it's of God, God is sovereign, say that, and ultimately, it's in man's hands who will go there. And that's the problem 
you'll get some kind of synergism. A synergism that eventually when you look through it and unravel a little bit, it kind of goes, oh, yeah, it's got the same underlying problems as Pelagianism. Now, I'm not saying it is Pelagianism and all that kind of thing. Of course not. But eventually, kind of take it where it's going and, uh, yeah, it's... So it's all about God's power. Especially from verse 10 down to 24, if not later. Yeah, it's all about God's power. Verse 30 onwards is kind of deal with a different different situation. Really, the, verse 30 of Romans chapter 9, which he kind of dealt with, is really dealing with the, the situation with the Gentiles. Basically, what makes the difference between the Gentiles from a... You say, what they did point of view. The difference was the Gentiles didn't seek to try and establish their own righteousness like Israel. They sought it by faith and they trusted upon the righteousness of Christ, which is then imputed to their account. And during the Reformation, this was the difference between Rome and the Reformation. There was always very clear demarcations. And in, in William Lane Craig's case, and it's amazing how much of a, how much of a hearing it's getting, that the fact that this is a, you know admittedly Jesuitical, that this is this theology comes from the Jesuits. This is not something I'm. It's not some conspiracy talk or anything like that. Um, page one hundred thirty-three. Beyond the biblical evidence, the Jesuits saw that the theological capital was to be gained by ascribing middle knowledge to God. Pre-science, providence, and predestination could be explained in a manner compatible with human freedom. And what the Jesuits did was this. They wanted to nullify the debate and say, well, yeah. Okay, man is, God is sovereign. Okay, fine, we'll keep that. Man is free will. Okay, we'll say that too. And then find a way, a philosophical way of saying, you know what? It doesn't have to be one or the other. Both. Okay, that's maybe a tiny bit of oversimplification of what <laughs> went back back then. Um, but this is what um, Lane Craig also says this um page 137, middle knowledge can thus provide an illuminating account not only of God's foreknowledge but also of his providence and predestination. St these terms are still used. They're not going to reject these terms. They use these terms but they become rede redefined. He says, does God then possess middle knowledge? It would be difficult to prove in any direct way that he does for the biblical passage are not, equiv not equivocal. Nevertheless, the doctrine is so fruitful in illuminating divine prescience, providence, predestination, that it can be presumed unless there is no insoluble objections to it. It's kind of a typical Lane Craig way. I mean, he's, he's pretty much a hardcore Molinist now, but even when he was writing this, um, he said, oh, well, he couldn't be equivocal, but it's fruitful, and unless it's, you know, debunked or disproven or something like that. Okay. It suffers from exactly the same problems as Arminianism. And I can't remember, I think, 
there was a, a point in another video where he was being interviewed. I might even play it in a video from a couple of years ago where he said that it was how Arminianism entered Protestantism. That it was. Or like basically Arminianism was Molinism just repackaged for Protestants. Said not so much in those words, but um what it does, it doesn't affirm predestination, it doesn't affirm God's sovereignty, it redefines it and it waters it down. I just pray by God's grace. I, there doesn't seem to be many people in the chat, so I might just leave it there. Hopefully be back in a few weeks' time. If you've got questions or whatever on various different topics, I'll try and keep, you know, covering different topics. I haven't done much on Calvinism in the last while, actually. I don't think, I think the last time I'd done something in Calvinism, it might have been eight, nine months ago, if I'm not mistaken. So hopefully that's been a blessing to you. Hopefully that makes sense. Middle knowledge is a kind of a way that God still said to be sovereign and elect and do all these things, but it's because he has picked a world of out of multiple alternative worlds and all that, and he picked a world in which the following would happen, and then that's called sovereignty. It's not sovereignty. It still leaves salvation in the hands of man, which, you know, it robs... God of his glory and it does affect how you share the gospel and it, and it affects how you see the gospel and it affects the gospel not even just is salvation in the hands of God do we pray or do we see it in man's hands and if it's in man's hands we better do whatever it takes to get him in the building or do whatever it takes but we know what it is not God is sovereign. Let us obey him, trust him, and serve him. It's been Paul Flynn. May God bless you all.